The scripture reading for today is from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad to see those of you who have joined us in the room, and I know there's a whole bunch of you that have joined us online this morning. We're glad you're with us. I want to especially welcome back those of you who maybe were here with us for the first time last weekend for the celebration of Easter. We're so glad that you have returned. We are uh, continuing in this sermon series through the Easter season called Never the Same. As we begin this morning, I, I, wanna, I wanna show you a, a quotation from the great 16th century reformer Martin Luther, but, but I wanna see if you can figure out how he might have ended this sentence. Here's what Luther said. To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is. I wonder how you think he might have finished that sentence. Some of you that have maybe been around church for a while, you may hear that and you think, well, well to, to be convinced of our, in our hearts of, that we are forgiven of our sins and have peace with God by grace alone is the gospel. It, it is salvation. Maybe if you know a little theological terminology about Luther, it is justification by grace through faith. And if you were to say that, you'd be saying something that's true, and yet it's not exactly the way that Luther finished the sentence. Maybe others of you hear those words to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is, and you might reach for words like impossible, too good to be true. And if you found yourself feeling that way, that those are the words that sort of sprung up in your heart and your mind, you would actually be closer to what Luther said. Because here's the way that the great 16th century Protestant reformer finished the sentence. To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sin and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. It is hard, Luther says, for us to be convinced in our hearts that we really are forgiven to be convinced in our hearts that, that we really do have peace with God, to be convinced in our hearts that we have that by grace alone. So the hardest thing, why? Because we know ourselves. We know our flaws. We know our failures. We know our shame. 
And we can easily fall prey into thinking that God feels about us the way that we sometimes feel about ourselves. You know, from time to time, you may have picked up on this. I like to repeat myself. And I do that on purpose because there are some things that I just will say to you over and over again in hopes that when that's the truth you need, it will be right there for you to reach for. And one of the things that I say with some frequency is the idea that shame tells us lies about things that are true. Shame tells us lies about things that are true. That there are things that are true about me, things that I know about myself, but what shame wants to do is amplify the voice of self-condemnation. It's true that I am unworthy of love and forgiveness and grace. I, I am unworthy, but shame will say I am worthless. I, I fail. Shame says I am a failure. I have all kinds of flaws. Shame says I am unlovable. I, I mess up over and over and over again, and shame says I will never change, and I'm beyond hope. Shame amplifies the voice of self-condemnation in our lives. That sometimes we feel as though God must think about us the way we think about ourselves. And if we suffer under the weight of self-condemnation, it's just a short step to believe that we suffer under the weight of the condemnation of God. And that for some of us, we think, even if he is obliged to forgive us, he does so begrudgingly and always devising some way to still make us pay. This morning, we're going to look at the truth. The truth that's found in Romans chapter eight. If you have a Bible, I wanna invite you to turn with me. Romans chapter eight. And as we go through this series over the next six weeks of the Easter season, we're going to be exploring Romans chapter eight, verse by verse, six weeks, one chapter. Because what we find in this chapter is truth that is powerful and transformative. And I just wanna encourage you, if you've kind of gotten out of the habit of bringing your Bible with you to church or not having it handy on your mobile app, you might want it during this series because this is some dense material, but it is so rich, so beautiful, and so transformative that I want you to be able to follow along and maybe even to be able to mark up your Bible as we work our way through it. Because as we move through this series called Never the Same, we begin just with the reality, the recognition that, uh, that sometimes we don't live the lives that we want to live. Right, that we find ourselves living disenchanted lives. We're not exactly who we want to be. We're not exactly where we thought we'd be. Things haven't turned out the way that we expected them to be. And we can easily fall prey to thinking that says, this is just the way that it is. This is just the way that I am. We get stuck, we get dispirited, we get despondent, we get disenchanted. Can I ever change? Can, can the world ever change? Can anything ever change? But as we said last week, at the heart of the Christian story is an event that if it happened, has the power to change everything. If the tomb is empty, then nothing is ever the same. 
My life is never the same. Your life is never the same. The world is never the same. If the tomb is empty, friends, nothing is ever the same. And that means that there is a power at work in the world that has the potential to change us, to change our lives, to change the world, to change our destinies, to change everything. And as we work our way through Romans chapter eight, we're going to see the power of God to bring change to our lives and our world. And it begins here in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Listen to these words that you heard read earlier. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, those four verses are pretty dense, but I wanna actually show you the structure of what Paul is doing here. So take a look up on the screen at the way this passage breaks down. Verse one begins with therefore, verse two begins with because, verse three with four, and verse four in order that. The therefore tells us what is true. The because tells us why it's true. The for tells us how it is true. And the in order that tells us what it's true for. You can think of it as justification in verse one, uh, liberation in verse two, incarnation in verse three, and sanctification in verse four. But, but the way we'll break it down is what is true, why it's true, how it's true, and what it is true So first, let's look together at what this passage tells us is true about us if we are in Christ Jesus. Verse one, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul begins this passage with the word therefore, and it's an overused cliche for preachers, and yet it's still actually helpful. Many preachers will often point out whenever you see this word, you have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? What's the therefore, therefore? What's the purpose of this little word? And the purpose of the word therefore is always to point us back. It's to say the point that I'm about to make comes out of the point that I've just made. So when we start a passage with the word therefore, we actually have to look back and say, well, what has Paul been saying that makes what he's about to say true of us? And so you look back and you see in chapter seven, this very well-known passage where Paul describes Profound human struggle. Picking up in verse 15 of chapter seven, Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, that's a lot of do's and a lot of doing, but, but I hope you followed because this passage just describes profoundly the human condition. I don't understand what, what I don't wanna do, I do what I, what I wanna do, I fail to do. Um, for years, my wife has bought for our family golden Oreos. I don't know if you've had golden Oreos, but... Um, my wife buys them, and I think she's bought them through the years because she think, thinks our kids like them. 
She thinks our kids like them because they always disappear. But I don't actually think our kids like them at all. The problem is I like them. (laughs) And what happens is every time I open the cabinet and there they are, the golden Oreos right there before me, I go, I'm not gonna eat the Oreos, I'm not gonna eat the Oreos, I'm not gonna eat the Oreos, and then what do I do? I eat the Oreos, right? I'm gonna eat the salad, I'm gonna eat the salad, I'm gonna eat the salad, and I don't eat the salad. And of course, that is a relatively trivial, but very real for me, example of a much deeper reality that in one way or another, I think we all experience. Why do I do the things I don't wanna do? And what I hate, this I keep on doing. I think what Paul is getting at here is the inevitable result of anyone who tries to fight the flesh by means of the flesh. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Paul uses this word flesh throughout, and and Paul can use the word flesh in a variety of different ways depending on the context. Sometimes he uses the word flesh to refer to our fleshiness, our bodies. Sometimes he actually uses the word flesh to refer to our ethnicity, but oftentimes he uses the flesh in a kind of moral category to talk about our base desires, those kind of animalistic instincts that we have, those, those cravings for our own satisfaction. And this tendency that we have to operate in, uh, in, uh, with a sense of, of selfishness, the tendency that we have to be turned in upon ourselves, to be self-reliant, self-dependent. This is what Paul means by the flesh. I think when Paul describes this experience of frustration, futility, it is the inevitable result of attempting to fight the flesh by means of the flesh by means of some sense of self-reliance, of uh, of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, of finding enough will and discipline to overcome those base cravings and desires. This is the inevitable result of trying to fight the flesh by means of the flesh. Why do I do what I don't wanna do and what I hate this I keep on doing? Then he goes on in verse 24 to say, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul asks the right question here. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? It's important that Paul asks it as a who question and not a what question. Because we sometimes ask it as a what question. What is gonna help me? What is gonna deliver me? What is gonna rescue me? And the what can be filled in with will, with discipline, with good advice, with self-help. And listen, it may take some will and some discipline and some self-help, but those things, while not bad in themselves, are insufficient in and of themselves. Those are fighting the flesh by means of the flesh. Paul says, it's not a what question. What will rescue me? What will deliver me? But who? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, Lord, he has given us victory. Therefore, in light of the reality that Jesus has given us this victory, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have a Bible, you wanna underscore those two little words, now and no. The word now means now. 
right now, in this moment, there is no condemnation right here, right now, in the present, at this moment. There is now no. No is none, now, or forevermore. Now is immediate, no is eternal. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is not, nor will there ever be, any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what is true, according to Paul. But then he goes on in verse two to explain why it's true. Verse two, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The because answers why that is true. And as he um, talks about here, he talks about the contrast between two laws. Now, in this whole section, Romans 7 and 8, Paul will talk about law in a few different ways. And, and before we unpack the different way he uses the term, it's important just to recognize there are a couple of different kinds of law. There's the law of ought and the law of is. Right? The law of ought is how you ought to live, what you ought to do, what you ought not to do. So, for example, traffic laws are laws of ought. You ought to stop fully at the stop sign. I got one of those tickets not that long ago, right? You have to fully stop at the stop sign. Uh, you ought to stop. You ought not drive over a particular uh, speed. So that's the law of ought, what you ought to do, what you ought not to do. There's also then the law of is, that is like the law of gravity. The, gra the law of gravity says there just is gravity. Well, when it comes to Paul's usage of the term law, sometimes he talks about the law of God, referring to the Old Testament law, which is a law of ought. This is how you ought to live. This is what you ought not do, to live up to, according to God's desires and intentions for your life, the law of ought. But then he talks about the law of sin and death. And that's the law that is. The law of sin and death is like gravity. It just is. Sin is always there, always after you, never letting you go. Always trying to pull you down, to hold you back like gravity does. That, that even when we've been set free from sin, sin doesn't just say, well, we lost another one. Sin is always right there trying to hold us down. It's the law of sin and death, the law that, that is. But Paul here says there is another law at work, another law of is, the law of the spirit who gives life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life is like the law of aerodynamics. Gravity never lets you go, but aerodynamics is a law that is more powerful than the law of gravity. In a, a week and a half from now, I'm going to be flying to Chicago for a conference with some colleagues of mine. Now, when I say I'm gonna be flying to Chicago, you have a particular sort of picture in your mind of what that looks like, right? And it doesn't look like me standing and flapping my arms really hard and really fast all the way from here to Chicago, right? There's nothing that I can do in my own strength, in my own power to overcome the law of gravity. Try as I might, it ain't gonna happen. But what will happen is I will get on a plane and the law of aerodynamics will overcome the law of gravity. I will not fly myself to Chicago. I will be 
flown. That there's got to be a law that's, that's, that's more powerful than the law of gravity to get me there. The same is true when it comes to the law of sin and death. There is nothing I can do, no matter how hard I try, to overcome the reality of the law of sin and death. I need a power greater than myself, a law stronger than the law of sin and death. And Paul says that law is the law of the spirit who gives life, who has set you free from the law of sin and death. What is true is that there is now no condemnation. Why is it true? Because the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If that's what is true and why it's true, then we ask, well, how is that true? And Paul tells us in verse three, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering and so to condemn sin in the flesh. Paul says, for what the law was powerless to do. And now he's talking about the Old Testament law, the law of God, the the law of ought, how you ought to live, how you ought not to live, God's desire and intention for his people. And Paul says, the law was powerless to deal with the law of sin and death. You can think about with this analogy, I had a very interesting week uh, during Holy Week. Um, on Wednesday of Holy Week, leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I went in and got a CT scan done of a little spot, of a, a swollen lymph node on my left collarbone. And uh, I'd seen my doctor. He said, you know, there's all kind of innocent explanations as to what might be going on. But then there are some not so innocent explanations that we want to explore and eliminate. And uh, so we worked on scheduling this exam. And There was part of me that just wanted to put it off until after Easter, like let's just get Easter, Holy Week over with and then I'll go in. But there was also part of me that's like, I don't wanna wait. (laughs) I wanna know what's going on. And so it ended up getting scheduled for Wednesday last week. I went into that thinking that I probably wouldn't hear anything until after Easter, probably Monday or Tuesday of this past week before I hear anything. And, And so I went and I went for the exam, but I talked to the tech and I just said, how quickly should I expect to hear about my results? And he said, oh, we can usually turn these around pretty quickly, so you may get something even before the end of the day today. Well, I start checking the app, checking the app. I'm just sort of obsessing a little bit, quite frankly. Um, Got caught in the doom loop a little bit, catastrophizing. And uh, Wednesday came and went, I hadn't heard anything. Thursday, checking the app. All day, nothing. Friday, I get to the end of business on Friday. I, I've heard nothing. And I think, okay, this is probably best. It's gonna be Monday or Tuesday before I hear anything. And so this way I can just try to kind of put that out of my head and I can just focus in on Good Friday. I can focus in on Easter Fest on Saturday and I can focus on, on preaching my sermon on Easter Sunday morning. All that played out accordingly. And then Sunday morning came and I got up at the nine o'clock service. I preached my Easter Sunday message and went back between services on Easter Sunday morning, and I look, and I've got a notification. Your test results are available. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> on Easter Sunday morning, in between services. So I just said, I'm not looking. I put the phone back on my shelf, came back out, 
and preach that 1045 sermon. I can tell you, if anybody in the room needed that sermon last week, the preacher did. Um, determined I would preach my sermon, I would go have lunch with my family, and then I'd go check it on Sunday afternoon. Now, hopefully, you've guessed by the, the fact that I'm telling the story, it was good news. I'm cleared of any cause for concern, so that's good. That was certainly a relief. But uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I was, I was scared. So here's the point of the analogy. I'm really thankful for a CT scan. CT scan is good. CT scan can tell you you don't have cancer. CT scan can tell you you do have cancer. What the CT scan cannot do is cure your cancer. It can help you see the reality of what's there. It can't do anything about it. And that's what Paul says is true of the law. The law can help you see that you have a problem with the cancer of sin. The law is powerless, Paul says, to do anything about it. It makes it very clear, yes, you do have the cancer of sin but the law can do nothing to cure you of it. It's not meant to do that. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with sin. The problem isn't with the CT scan. The problem is with the cancer. And Paul says, all of us have the cancer of sin. The law just makes clear what we've got. But it's powerless to do anything about it. But Paul says, what the law was powerless to do, God did. What the law was powerless to do about your cancer of sin, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice he doesn't say in the likeness of flesh, his flesh was real. Notice he doesn't say in the likeness of sin, your sin that was laid on him was real. Paul says God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God took what was ours, our sin, and he put it on Jesus so he could take what was Jesus, his righteousness, and put it on us. What the law was powerless to do, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. I love what Michael Bird says about this little phrase, condemned sin in the flesh. He says, Jesus' sacrificial death means that God has condemned sin in the flesh, specifically in the flesh of Jesus. God does not condemn Jesus. More precisely, God condemns sin. But Jesus sucks the poison of sin from us and draws its venom into his own flesh where it is denounced and defeated. What the law was powerless to do God did by sending his son to be a sacrifice for sin. What is true, why it's true, how it's true, and then finally what it's true for, verse four. What's all this about? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us. Paul is talking about our walking in such a way that we actually become righteous, that we actually live up to God's desire and intention for us. That we might actually become righteous. If what he said so far is about what theologians call justification. What he says now is about our sanctification. Justification is the cause. Sanctification is the effect. Justification, preachers have sometimes sort of helped uh, us remind what, what it means. 
with the idea of to say you're justified is just as if I'd never sinned. And I think that's helpful that it doesn't quite go far enough. To say justified is just as if I, that God looks at us as just as if I'd never sinned, it actually is even further to say just as if I'd always obeyed. When God looks at me, he looks at me just as if I had always been the man I wanted to be. He looks at me as though I'd, I'd always been the husband I wanted to be, the father I wanted to be, the disciple I wanted to be. He looks at me as though I'd always lived up to my own highest desires and expectations of myself and his highest desires and expectations of me. He looks at me just as if I'd always obeyed. He looks at you just as if you had always obeyed. But sanctification then is actually learning to obey. It's actually learning to live as the person I've wanted to be, the husband I've wanted to be, the father I've wanted to be, the disciple I've wanted to be. And this is the reason for no condemnation. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be met in us who walk not according to the flesh, but who walk according to the spirit. When we walk according to the flesh, fighting the flesh by means of the flesh, we will fail. Why do I do what I don't want to do? But Paul says, but we don't walk by the flesh, but walk by the Spirit. Some of us are failing precisely because we've refused to acknowledge just how weak and flawed we really are. We have too much confidence in ourselves. The only way to arrive at holiness is by the road of self-renunciation and surrender. I can't, you can, I surrender. I am weak, you are strong, be strong in me. H.B. Charles again is helpful in this, um, speaking to this passage when he says, it is the will of God to have the spirit of God Use the word of God to make the children of God look like the son of God. This is our sanctification, our learning to live holy lives. And it only comes by way of self-renunciation and surrender. I can't, you can, I surrender. Friends, shame amplifies the voice of self-condemnation. I am unworthy. Shame says I am worthless. I am deeply flawed. Shame says I am unlovable. I have failed. Shame says I am a failure. I mess up over and over and over again. Shame says I will never change, that I'm beyond hope. But here's what's true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here's why it's true. For the law of the spirit who gives life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And here's how it's true. For what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And here's what it's true for. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but who live according to the spirit. Now, as we conclude this morning, I just want to underscore one very important phrase in all of this. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, today can be your day. When you simply say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you that you are who you say you are, that you did what you say you did, that you've taken my sin upon the cross. I trust in you for the promise of forgiveness and for the hope of eternal life. If that's you today, our prayer for you is today would be the day in which you put your trust in Christ. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the invitation now is to embrace the reality that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so we can come and partake of communion together with full confidence But before we come to the table, we're gonna take just a moment to reflect quietly before the Lord. So I would just invite all of you to to bow with me, to close your eyes, and to take this opportunity before we come to communion to examine your heart before the Lord, knowing that whatever you find there, Jesus has dealt with. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So let's take a moment of quiet before the Lord. Father, we thank you today for the truth that this passage tells us is true about us. No condemnation. We thank you that we can know that is true because the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. And we can know that is true because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And God, now we desire to walk newness of life, to walk in obedience to you, to walk by the Spirit. We thank you that we can come and respond, partaking of these elements that remind us of what Christ has done for us, what the law was powerless to do, God did. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And it is fitting this morning for us to respond to you with grateful hearts as we come to the table and as we worship you. So we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.